Now, if you've got a Bible, let me read a whole chapter to you. It's uh, Hebrews chapter 4. It's somewhat familiar. I, um, I suggest that Hebrews 4 really started way back in chapter 3 uh, at verse 7. And remember, I said to you last week, we were going to look at a chapter and a half. Well, this is the concluding part of an argument that he started in chapter 3. And back there, do you recall, I mentioned last week that he, he raises the whole issue of Psalm 95. And in Psalm 95, there is the reference to the rebellion that is, is something that took place at Kadesh Barnea in Numbers 13 and 14. Did you get all that? Numbers. Psalms related to that, and then Hebrews related to that. And here we are talking about it too. So, Here we go. You follow as I read a portion of God's Word. It reads like this. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened for we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest is also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may, may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this word, this endures forever. Hey guys, could you follow all that? I mean, did you get lost in the, in the text as I read it? I mean, it is, um, it is somewhat uh, complex, um, and I hope to make some sense out of it for you, but you stay with me and we'll see if you can't enjoy it because there's richness in it. Um, I really didn't have much trouble this week coming up with a um, uh, title for my sermon because you may have noticed as I read it, the word rest, which is the Greek word kataposis, is found 10 times in that chapter, rest. Apparently, the author of Hebrews, we think is Paul, I guess, 
Paul wanted us to know something about rest. And, and who doesn't enjoy a good night's rest? Or a vacation that is restful? Or a sitting around the pool and resting? And yet I think you could tell from the text that the author doesn't have any of that kind of rest in mind. He's talking about something else. And he is going to make sure that the reader or the listener understands the kind of rest that he is talking about. So he tells you by way of negation what he's not talking about, and he also includes what he is talking about. Now, gang, while he does that, that is, this, this author, while he is making sure that you know the kind of rest that he's got in mind, you, you've, you, you've got to realize what it is that's going on here. This is a pastor. It's, um, it's a shepherd. It's a, he's a physician of the soul. And he is talking to a group of professing believers, and he is reminding them of what's been promised to them. In, in my mind's eye, here, here's how I see it. There's a group of people. They're sitting on the floor, and there may be 40 of them or 60 of them or whatever, and he is talking to them, reminding them of their history uh, of Kadesh Barnea, and is reasoning with them and reminding them of what has been promised to them and cautioning them, saying, in essence, hey guys, we don't want what happened to them to happen to us. You know those two million of our forebears that are buried in the, in the wilderness? Why, they missed out on the rest. Okay, what rest? What kind of rest did they miss out on? Well, first of all, he says in verses 3 and 4, I'm not talking about the rest that is associated with creation. You know that God rested the seventh day after he created the heavens and the earth? Not that one. Not that one. And, and, and I'm not talking about the one that Joshua gave to Israel once Israel entered the promised land. Not that one. You do understand, don't you, that they were in the promised land for 450 years before Psalm 95 was ever even written. It can't be that one. So he's not talking about the one associated with creation or the one associated with, that's in verse 8, by the way, the one associated with Joshua's leading them into the promised land. That's not the one we're talking about. It's another one. <clears throat> and look at verse 9. <clears throat> so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Right above that. Not have spoken of another day later on. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. I'm talking about one that's off in the future. I'm not, I'm not talking about the Sabbath. I'm not talking about entering Canaan. I'm talking about the one that comes later. The one that remains out in front of us. That's the one that your two million forebears missed out on. 
That's the rest that those Jews did not enter. That future one. And so this pastor looks at his little audience and he says, verse 11, let us therefore strive. Strive to enter that one. We don't want what happened to them to happen to us. There's a rest. It's a promised rest. Don't be thinking that you need to turn from Jesus to avoid persecution. <clears throat> uh-uh. If you do that, you will miss out on the rest just like those two million Jews did back in the rebellion. Now guys, that brings us to verse 12, which for me is where the text really gets thrilling. Here's a pastor talking to his audience saying, there's a rest, they missed out on it, there are people who entered it, people who did not enter it, there are two groups of people, some who entered, some who didn't. And so his audience is wondering, okay, is there a way that I might determine or discover to which group I belong? Do I belong to the group of enterers? Or do I belong to that other group? And notice what he does. The word. He points them to the Word of God. He says, for the Word of God is living and active. You see, he tells his audience, there's, there's this thing that, that God gave to both groups by which we can determine which group we're in. Um, it, it, it's an instrument, you see. It's an instrument like a sword that cuts. Uh, and when used rightly, it, it slices through all of that religious foolishness, all of that, that, that highfalutin church talk, a lot of that empty jargon, and, and it, takes us, it takes us straight to the heart of the matter. You see, listen, oh dear ones, there's a device, you see, and it hacks through all of those gnarly hedges of useless religious shenanigan and produces, look at verse 13, it produces nakedness and exposure. It exposes the truth about us to us. Gang, part of the intent of this book is to put a stop to our comparing ourselves by ourselves. For example, compared to me, some of y'all are doing really good. <laughs> There's just one problem with that. 
I'm not the standard. So what this book does is that it shows us the real standard. And the real standard is the God before whom we must give an account. Verse 13. So you see, part of the intent of this pastor and this book is to prevent us from self-deception. It's designed to prevent one of those scenes that you find in Matthew 7. Remember that? When the folks come before Jesus and they say, um, and Jesus says, mm, depart from me, I never knew you. And they say, well, then wait, hold on just a second. Um, uh, <clears throat> didn't I do that, that, and that? He says, well, yeah, you maybe have, but I never knew you. Gang, do you know what an extraordinary kindness that God has put in our, at our disposal in this book? This reliable gauge so that we might know the truth about who we are in His eyes? N not in the folks in this room. Folks, this book takes a magnifying glass down into the deepest recesses of our soul. You, you know in that place where only you and God go? And then once there, it shouts to us. It shouts to us the truth about me and you. Helping us to see what is really there. Am I real? Have I fooled myself? Am I a pretender? You see, gang, I could never answer those questions for you. But here's the good news. This can... And to that end, ladies and gentlemen, this book is the best friend that you and I have. It will tell me the truth about myself. <clears throat> and then, guys, did you notice what the author does? He, verse 12, he's talking about this word of God that everybody knows this text about it pierces the division and all that business. And then in verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight and um, uh, exposed to the eyes of him. Do you see what the author just did? He equated the book with the person. To be exposed to the book is to be exposed to him. Because, ladies and gentlemen, he is the standard. This pastor is telling his congregation that there were people back in the rebellion, you know, the one back at Kadesh Barnea. Look at verse 2. They heard 
but what they heard did not benefit them. And then in verse 6, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter. because of disobedience. So guys, they heard, they received, but they still failed to enter. Why is that? Because of disobedience. So here, here's one of the first. Here's one of the first pieces of exposure. Has what I've heard and received has it given me a greater interest in obedience? Because if it hasn't. You missed it. And like them, you will fail to enter the rest. But you see, on the other hand, and, and this is, on the other hand, this other group, um, for good news, verse 2, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Do you see that subtle shift between, I heard it, these people listened. There's something more intimate in listening than in hearing. And the thing that is pointed out here is they heard what they, once, once they heard what they heard, it became the genesis of faith. They heard the same thing. But then part of the group who entered responded in faith. And then in verse 10 it says, they, they laid aside their, their work, they rested from his works. And then in verse 11, they, they strive to enter, avoiding all occasions for disobedience. So there you go. This book is saying to hear is not enough, to receive is not enough. When it's not joined to faith, a cessation from the works and producing a greater and greater interest in obedience. So how'd you do? I mean, um, how'd you match up against this microscope here? Not so good? Did it, did it expose, perhaps for the first time, that I'm really lost, I'm undone, I'm guilty, I'm ruined. Surely there's got to be a little bit more Dr. Young beyond just verse 13. 
there is. Verses 14 through 16, folks, tell us that we have another friend who is powerful and is available. He's, he's called the great high priest. He's even given a name. His name is Jesus, and he's not one who is unable. No, no. He is quite able and powerful, and we're also told in verse 15 that he is sympathetic. The Greek word there is sympathesi. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like an English word? Sympathesi. It's a word that means suffers with. The Puritans, the Puritans used to talk about sucker, not S-U-C-K-E-R, but S-U-C-C-O-R, that Jesus was able to provide sucker to those who faced temptation. He, of course, facing temptation and then some without sin. And so this sympathetic high priest comes alongside giving help in times of need. Now, gang, if you stood before this device and it exposed that your soul is not real, your greatest need is for a sympathetic Savior. So Christians, this pastor is saying to his audience, your only option in the midst of your discoveries is not to run from Christ, but to run to him. Oh, my friend, if this glorious device has shown you something that is true about your soul, what you need now is this sympathetic Savior. Now, let me point out one more thing and I'm done. When I read this whole chapter, which I don't normally read that much, but as I read this whole chapter, did you notice that the language of let us is found four times? Verse 1, let us fear. Verse 11, let us strive. Verse 14, let us hold fast. Verse 16, let us draw near. So that pretty much sums it up, ladies and gentlemen. Let us fear, let us strive, let us hold fast, and let us draw near. You want a summary of the Christian life? Well, there it is. Let us fear, let us strive, let us hold fast, let us draw near. There it is. But that's really not my point. Here's my point. Folks, do you want to see a pastor at work? 
Here's what a good pastor does. He turns to the people who profess Christ and he says, let us fear. Let us strive. Let us take hold. Let us draw near. A pastor worth his salt, ladies and gentlemen, is somebody who looks at the people of God and he points them to God's word and to God's Savior and says, let us fear, let us strive, let us hold fast, let us draw near. And so when you're dealing with the overwhelming realization of your sin, draw near, hold fast. And, and when I'm tempted to give this whole thing up, lay hold, hold fast. Now guys, if you have figured out, based on the truths that are contained in this book, that God has given you a new heart by his sovereign grace, then you are made all the more eager to heed those summons. Let us fear. Let us strive. Let us take hold. Let us draw near. Because I have this longing, you see, a longing of the new heart for more mercy and grace to deal with my sin and to deal with whatever temptation I find myself. And when I'm tempted to throw in the towel... I don't run from him. I run to him. Now, my friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, then you have a whole different set of longings. Longings that show up quite regularly in a desire to disobey your life like the ones in the rebellion, is a life character, characterized by disobedience. And this chapter and a half is saying to you, you will not enter his rest. That future one, you're not going to enter it. Because you, like the ones in the rebellion, you heard, you received, but you chose to disobey. So, my dear friend, let us change that. Come to Christ. Our Father, we're so grateful for your word. It is, um, it, is, it is the stuff of food for our souls. And it shows us again and again and again how much we need the Savior that you provided. So Father, if you've led people here this morning who have not yet met our Savior, who are still outside the household of faith,
Would you show them that very clearly, not by my sermon, but by your word? And that would, then would you go on to show them the beauty of the provisions of the great high priest who was tempted and always like we are, and yet without sin. And so what we need is him. Might he be um, seen in all of his beauty this morning? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.